0: And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church.
1: Can we do that for the Lord? Let's, let, let's clap our hands and give Him praise. He's worthy. He's worthy. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing we serve a great god amen we're going to start this morning in the book of revelation chapter 7 we'll be reading verses 13 through 14 and while you're finding that i just want to say how thankful i am to be in god's house this morning with you you are you, you uh, us alone we don't make it work god has to be here but if you were not here it would, not be, it would not be pleasant as it is now. I'm thankful Brother Williams read the scripture that we have a hope that is, is already secured. I want to spend eternity with him, but I'm thankful for the hope that I can spend eternity with you. I'm, I'm thankful for this church. I love this church, and I love each and every one of you, and I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, the Bible says, And one of the elders answered, and saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came that they? And, he, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the of the Lamb and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this, this last Sunday of April, we just want to talk for a few moments about being marked for eternity, marked for eternity. I'm thankful for that hope that we can be marked for eternity. I love, I love restoration projects. I don't like doing restoration projects. I like watching them. I like restoration before and after photos and videos. Something about it just just really enamors me. I I don't care what it is. It can be anything. It can be a house. It could be a a car. It could be an old pair of boots or a pair of tennis shoes. I just like to see things before and after. I love seeing things transformed from being less than desirable, perhaps thrown away to being fully restored back to their intended purpose. I, I have wearied my wife and my daughter at times, not making them, but admonishing them to w- watch videos with me, YouTube videos of an old pair of work boots being resold or perhaps an old pair of Michael Jordan tennis shoes that someone threw in a dumpster. They, they restored them back to with the way they come off the showroom floor it can be an old car somebody found in a barn or an old house that someone's fixing up. Because to me, there's nothing worse than something that is not being used for its intended purpose. Right. A pair of red wing work boots that somebody threw away because the soles were worn. A classic car that someone parked in a barn somewhere because perhaps it became obsolete. They forgot about it, discarded parked, not used, there's nothing worse than being thrown away, discarded, because one believed its worth was diminished. But equally, there is nothing better to me than something being restored to what it was intended to be. While one said, it's over, it's done, there's no use left in it, Another one came along and said, I believe there's still some worth there, and I believe that it's worth putting in the effort to bring it out. When mankind transgressed and rebelled the word of God, he lost his identity in the garden. He hid himself from the presence of God, ashamed and broken and guilty. There was no doubt that he was guilty, and the enemy thought that it was over, but God It's all about redemption because he is in the restoration business. Instead of discarding that thing that was potentially ruined, God set out a plan to redeem humanity. It would have been easy just to start all over again. It would have been well within the realm of reason and would have even made sense for him to just start all over again but I'm thankful that he didn't start all over again. I'm glad he didn't throw that thing away and say that there's nothing left and there's no more use, but God did the hard work and went to work for man. I'm thankful this morning for the blood, for the blood that was shed for that man in that garden and his family. God did the hard thing. And with his hands, just as he had fashioned that man from the dust of the ground, he slayed an innocent lamb and he fashioned a covering for him and his family and concealed and clothed them. What mercy. What love, what grace God has bestowed upon man that he would not just discard him and throw him away but that he would put his hands back down into the same mire and in the same muck and give him another opportunity. So in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, God begins to reveal his plan. He begins to unveil his plan to us. We see it from the beginning in the very first mention of the very first good news that God has provided for man as God begins to pronounce that cursing over the serpent first and as he begins to display his mercy to mankind. We see it throughout the prophetic books of the Old Testament as it prophetically begins to tell of a coming Savior to its profoundly providential revealing of itself in the new as Jesus steps on the scene just like he said he would. We see it throughout the hope of the Gospels, through the reiteration and the hope and instruction in the epistles, and finally we see its culmination and its completeness in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation reveals the purpose of God as it culminates into its final act. It's in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the Lord begins to reveal himself to John. Now it's important to know that this did not happen by accident. It was not something that happened just by chance. It was not a random act. But John matter-of-factly tells how this began to occur and unfold. He states that he was in the spirit and he was in that spirit on the Lord's day. And this demonstrates to us first and foremost this morning of the absolute importance of being in tune with the Spirit of God. It's very important to note that any revelation, that any unveiling, any revealing of God's Word to anybody, any man, any woman, or any child will not be unaccompanied by or absent of intentional, fervent prayer. That's how we got here today. This is not my notes, and it probably will take me over time, but that's how we got here today. Because there was a lady somewhere in her own home that began to read this book, and as she prayed unto God, show me your word, show me your truth, God was true to his word, and he did. And that's how we got here today. And so no one will ever be able to get anything from God unaccompanied by prayer. According to church tradition, John was the youngest of twelve apostles and he outlived them all. Instead of being martyred like the rest of them, John suffered a failed attempt at being boiled alive. Now exiled to a solitary island off the western coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea called Patmos, it is here and it is evident that John spent a considerable amount of time in prayer. John informs his audience why he is there in Revelation 1 and 9. He said, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom of, and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos. And here's why. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was marked. John had a mark on him, but John was marked for all the right reasons. In addition to informing the audience about his whereabouts, in addition to giving them a revelation of his circumstances, John also enlightened them regarding the intended purpose of his book and of his writing. He begins Revelation 1 and 1 with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't say the revelation of the end time. Although I know that that's primarily what we find in Revelation. What would happen in the end time. But that's not the intended purpose of the book. He said what the purpose is. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant John. The title of the book is taken from the opening words the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. It simply means a revelation, a disclosure, or an unveiling. The Greek text actually suggests both an, un- an unveiling of and an unveiling from Jesus himself. And so it's very easy and it's somewhat, it's somewhat common, I would say, that it's easy to dismiss this book because we don't quite understand everything that it says. We dismiss it because it's primarily symbolism and and it's, it's it's hard to understand. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we cannot afford to dismiss this book simply because we can't put one and one and two and two together. What we must do is strive to know more What we must do is dig deeper and ask God to reveal it to us, and he will. I believe that it's more important now than it ever has been. I don't know about you, but I believe that we're on the cusp of his coming, that he is coming back just like he said. He's going to part those eastern skies, and we will see it. And if we're ready, we'll meet him in the air. Revelation 1 and 3, this is why we should study because the word says, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so with that, this morning, I'll attempt through the power and the help of the Holy Ghost to dig just a little bit deeper into where we began. The events of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, warrant a deeper observation and a look into what John is telling us here. While nearly everything in the book of Revelation is counted, John describes here a massive group of people that simply cannot be. A group of people described as being from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe of the earth. It was not an exclusive group. It was not just a group of North Americans. It was not totally comprised of only South Americans. It was not Germany, it was not France, it was not one European country, but the Bible says that they were from every corner of the world. Now it's very interesting to note that many aspects made them different. Many, many things created a diversity in them, if you will. Their national origin, the color of their skin, their language, and perhaps even the dialect in which they spoke that language. However, many things made them different. But there is one significant thing that made them the same. It is what brought them together that held the significance. The Bible says that they were all clothed in white robes. And they all, with one accord, in one mind, with one voice, worshipped the Lamb. The Bible says that they are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let me say it again. Thank God for the blood. He could have thrown us away. He could have, he could have flooded the whole earth. He could not have taken Noah out of that situation and and, and began all over again he could have just stopped right there and we would not have known any different but I am so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems us I'll say it again thank God for the blood It's the blood that created songs like this. In sin I wandered sore and sad with bleeding heart and aching head till Jesus came and sweetly said, I'll take thy sins away. I gave my heart, my life, my all to him who drank the cup of gall to raise the guilty from the fall and take their sins away. Thank God for the blood. Thank God for the blood that washes white and snow another writer said it like this i know it was the blood i know it was the blood i know it was the blood for me one day when i was lost he died upon the cross and so i know it was the blood for me I wonder if I've gathered with a group of people here this morning that knows that it wasn't my own efforts, it wasn't my own panache, it wasn't my own pedigree that brought me out of sin, but it was the blood of Jesus Christ that has set me free and has redeemed me. Hallelujah. Thank God for the blood. It's that blood that marks us. It's that blood that marks us for salvation. It's that blood that marks us for his purpose and for his calling. It's that blood that transforms us, and it is that blood that will mark us for eternity, and it is all made possible because of his blood. Isaiah uses this metaphor in his prophecy to foretell of these future events in Isaiah 1 and 18. He said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's this imagery. It shows God's willingness. It shows his ability and his merciful desire to deal with sin. Not to condone sin. Not to turn his head towards sin. But to deal with with the sins of the world. Isaiah used a very interesting word in another context to explain humanity's sinfulness. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago briefly, but he used the word iniquity. Isaiah 64 and 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Two other words are used in the Old Testament to depict sinfulness. The word sin, where we translate sin from the Hebrew word "kata," It simply means to miss, to forfeit, or to lead astray. In other words, a mistake. Transgression is another word that is used from the Hebrew. It's the word pasha. It means revolt, rebel, rebellion, or trespass. It, 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 it denotes a, an, an intended trespass. And then there's the word iniquity. It comes from several words. Two words, avon, avon meaning perversity, moral, or evil, or a fault. Interestingly, David used all three of these terms in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent death of Uriah, of which he ordered. This word, iniquity, deserves a deeper exploration. It's derived from the root word, Ava, which is a verb meaning to crook or to twist or to bend or to distort. And so what the biblical authors here are attempting to show, it goes beyond action. It goes beyond what we say and what we do. It dives deeper beyond the physical actions or reactions, which are important, but it goes down into the root cause of these things. You see, iniquity deals with the immorality of the mind. It comes from thought patterns or thought processes, which are the originators of actions. Iniquity de- de- depicts the, the skewed and the inherently perverse way of seeing the world. And I don't know about you, but this is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. A twisted view, a skewed view Because twisted viewpoints inherently, inevitably lead to twisted actions, twisted reactions, and twisted lifestyles. Thus, like Isaiah says, like the wind, taking us away from the intended purpose of God for us. However, although we have been taken away, quote, unquote, or taken out of our purpose by our iniquities, there is something, and I've already said it, that can wash us clean and take us back into rightful place and into a rightful rep, uh, relationship with God. It It is something that will put us back into right relationship with God, the right relationship that he initially intended us to be in. It's his blood. It's blood that has been shed on Calvary. It is his blood that is here today and that is available. It is his blood that is powerful enough to cleanse us absolutely once and for all, absolutely from sin, and it is his blood that is absolutely necessary in order to do so. The culminating demonstration and the prophetic fulfillment is shown here in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation as those who have come out of great tribulation are arrayed in white robes made possible by the blood of the Lamb. It's His blood that transforms us. It's His blood. Not only does it cleanse us from the outside, but His blood has the power to cleanse us from the inside out. Clothing humanity in white symbolizes how God has wiped away the stain entirely through the blood of the Lamb. Yes, initial salvation is absolutely correct. And yes, we do improve in our holiness while we give ourselves through sanctification and the sanctification process. But this process only happens. It only occurs as we cooperate with the Spirit and the grace of God. That is why Paul said in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, That is the complete and total transformation that God is looking for in us. This process is not only powerful enough to cleanse us from sin, but this process is also powerful enough to keep us from sin. This is God's original plan. This is God's original purpose for mankind. In the garden, it provided a safe atmosphere. In the garden, it was a safe environment. Can I say it like this? It was an innocent existence. They had no idea what was going on around them, and that's what God intended for them to be in, a relationship with Him where all they knew was Him. All they lived and breathed was Him. They had the garden to themselves, but it was the relationship with God that was intended in the beginning. And so the introduction of sin... Posed, hear me now, by a misguided and a twisted question caused a separation or a wedge between God and man. But Jesus' death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, the shedding of his innocent blood, created an opportunity for individuals just like you and me by their willingness to surrender their will to God and to his purpose to reenter right relationship to God. Can I tell you today that that is available here right now and if you have not experienced that, I admonish you not to leave this building until you have. Because it's available. It's available. It's been made available. However, contrary to very popular beliefs and opinions, it is not Automatic. There is a choice that has to be made. It all comes down to choice. Indicative of the time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, Matthew 22 verses 1 through 14 depict a very comprehensive description. In a series of parables, Jesus tells his disciples the parable of the wedding feast. And I'll paraphrase He says the kingdom of heaven is likened to a father who throws a wedding party for his son. The king sends invitations through his servants, but the invited guests chose not to attend. Some of the invitees made light of the invite as if it were of no importance and then proceed to tend to other more important matters in their lives. While others treated the servants with disrespect, even going as far as committing violent crime against them. The king was angry when he heard and sent armies to destroy those that had committed such atrocities, and he burned their cities to the ground. He then sends his remaining servants to the highways. He sends them out into the hedges, and he invited as many as they could find. Jesus says that both good and bad were bidden to come. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now it is, it goes without saying that Jesus never ever speaks an arbitrary word. There is, there is no idle word that has ever been spoken from his mouth. So it's very important to identify these guests. It's, it's beneficial to clarify who we're talking about here. The parable stated the occasion for the feast was the son's wedding. So it would stand to reason that these guests were related to the son in some way or related to the wedding party. Typically in situations like these close family or close friends would be invited to such an event. It is after all a joyous occasion but by the preceding chapters if we just go back one or two we can see that the Pharisees are outside of themselves. They're incensed, they're angry at what he's saying so you know He's talking about them, or in a more general sense, He's speaking about Israel in and of themselves. It's those who refuse the invitation. It would be natural to surmise now that the reference to the King is Almighty God, while the reference to the Son is Jesus Himself, the only begotten of the Father. We find other examples in the New Testament that reiterates this in Matthew chapter 9, John 3, Revelation 19 and Chapter 21. And so now here Jesus is indicting the Jews who refused God. They refused him. And then they refused God's servants, subsequently killing them. After the king has destroyed these these murderous men and, and, and the king has sent out his servants a second time, he sends them out with different orders now. Now he's inviting all who would come. Now he has opened the door for whosoever will. Now he has given opportunity to those to come. He's uh, he's given opportunity to both good and bad. He's given opportunity to those that some would call degenerate. He's given opportunity to those that some would call lost or what others would deem unworthy, or would otherwise discard. In some cases, he's given opportunity and opened the door for those unwanted, those Gentiles. In other words, he opened the door for you and for me. He opened the door for whosoever will. Jesus said there were some good and there were some bad. But otherwise, they were none of the stock of Israel and the invitation at first was not for them. And so Jesus has now opened the door for all, for whosoever will, for the outcast, for the downtrodden, for the down on their luck, for the ones that don't have a future, for the ones who are lost and dying. He's opened the door and allowed them to come. The parable made it clear. The feast was not for them initially. Nonetheless, the Gentiles were invited in spite of Israel anyway. But hear me now. This is where it really starts to rub. Because apparently, it isn't enough just to be invited. Apparently, it isn't enough to only be invited. Matthew 22, 11 through 13, and when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, he called him friend. How camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him, He just called him friend. Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he makes this very pointed statement. And I'm not going to lie to you this morning. I've told the truth up to this point. This scared me. For many, verse 14, are called, but few are chosen. Now, if we were to just take this at face value, if we were just just on the surface of this thing, this statement made by Jesus, one moment he's calling him friend and the next moment he's casting him into outer darkness by force. It would be a rather pointed statement indeed it would be terse it would be cruel in fact if we were to look at this at face value just on the surface after all the door was open and all were invited all capital a capital l capital l were invited and so they came but here Jesus reminds his audience That the call has gone forth. We know this in Matthew 28, 19. Go ye into all the world. Preach, teach, baptize, make disciples. He said it in Acts 1 and 8. It has gone out into all the world. He reminds us over and over again that the call has gone forth and the invitation has been sent. But the invitation alone is not enough. And it's clear from the parable Jesus told, it isn't enough to merely show up to the party. But we've got to don the wedding garment. We've got to put on the wedding garment. Two words used in verse 14, the words called and chosen. The Greek called, kletos, is an adjective meaning invited Its root word, klesis, is a noun, an invitation. The word chosen in the Greek is eklektos, which is an adjective select by, implication. It is implicated as a favorite. But it has a root word, eklegomai. It means a verb, to select, to make choice, or to choose, which is derived by two words, a preposition, ek, denoting origin, which means out, from, by, and away, and the word lego, meaning to lay forth. And so this parable with these two words, called and chosen, demonstrates the absolute impossibility of trying to attend the feast on one's own terms and one's own conditions. It will not work that way. It is not his word. He said, I've called and now you must make the choice to put on the wedding garment. Because only those who are chosen can sit down at the intended messianic feast that will occur in the end time. Can I say it like this? without trying to hurt any feelings, I promise you, I don't mean any guile or or, or I'm not trying to misrepresent anything here today, but you can show up on your own terms because the call has gone out to whosoever will, but to stay and to make it to the end, Jesus demands total reformation and transformation, and it must be on His terms because many are called noun many are called called many are called noun called but few become verb few become what god has called them to be and so i can be called all day long but until i step forward and choose to become what god has called and intended for me to be it will not be enough to only be called this is why we must obey the gospel, not just hear the gospel. This is why we can't only believe, but we've got to put action and feet to our belief. It was so profoundly preached last Sunday but we have got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ after we have repented of our sins and the Bible says that we would be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And so we obey the gospel by giving obedience to the command that was given by Peter and the rest of the apostles on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 38 and then we allow the Spirit of God to change us and to mold us and to transform our lives into what He's called and intended for it to be. And we got to do it on His terms because it's for His purpose and He has marked us for eternity. I'm, I'm coming to a close. Michelangelo is attributed with saying every block of stone has a statue inside it. And it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Michelangelo was a Renaissance sculptor and painter. His most famous works include the statue, I hope I'm saying this right, Pieta and David. That's easy. And the painting of the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. These works in particular have helped to solidify Michelangelo's legacy as one of the greatest artists of all time. There are particularly interesting stories or accounts regarding Michelangelo's statue, in particular, David. First, the statue itself was made of a piece of unwanted marble that was rejected by two previous sculptors over the course of 40 years. It really does give credence to the old adage, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Arguably, the statue David is now regarded is one of the greatest sculptures of all time. Secondly, while working on the statue, Michelangelo is attributed with another quote. Critics stated that Michelangelo wasted too much marble while sculpting the statue. His reply to that is this. He said, as the chips fall, the image emerges. As the chips fall, what's on the inside comes out similarly God works on willing vessels as we exchange our garments for his as we allow his spirit to miraculously fill us and begin the restoration process as we continuously avail ourselves to his hands to his will to his purpose that's when the image of what he intends us to be emerges our ashes in exchange for his beauty our plans in exchange for his calling our wills offered up for his transforming power and as those chips begin to fall the image of God will emerge stand with me here this morning I don't know about you but I am grossly inadequate. I am unworthy to stand behind this desk and grossly unqualified. But God has called. And so I have to step forward into that calling. And so if I can admonish someone here today, God is calling. The invitation is open. The door has been opened. But it's time for you to step in To what God has called you to be. I want to become what He wants me to be. I want to be marked for eternity. I want to resemble now what soon will be completed. And as He calls His bride home, and as we gather together in that innumerable crowd and congregation and convocation of believers, this, this, where we began this morning, is what we are called to do. The Bible says in verse 15 through 17, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb, for the Lamb, which is in the midst of them, in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. My friends, this morning, that is what we are marked for. That is what we are called for that is what we are transformed for. And that is what we are intended to do for eternity. And if you want that this morning, you ought to lift your hands and you ought to lift your voice to heaven. And you ought to ask God to touch your mind and your heart to make us willing vessels unto his hands to do God what you've called us to do and to be what you've called us to be. Come on, would you lift your hands and your voices And let's pray, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your presence, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your promises, God. And we thank you, Lord, more than anything, God, for your cleansing power and your blood. Wash us now. Cleanse us now. Make us whole. Renew us and restore. God, set our feet on solid ground and help us to walk after your purpose and your will and your desire for us, oh God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord. And thank Him for His mercy and His grace. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus.
0: This message has been brought to you today by the Media Ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church.